Well, I am delighted that uh, I was invited by Pastor Greg to lead in worship, to participate in the worship service. Uh, of course, when he asked me to uh, do this, uh, I asked him what he wanted me to preach on. And he said, well, remember it's Lent, so we're going to focus on Jesus. And remember Jesus set his face steadfastly to the cross. And in the process, he met various people along the way. And we've been calling them encounters with Jesus. And so I gave him a list of about four, and he chose Nicodemus, okay? And that's what our message is going to be for tonight. The poll takers have it right. Ask the average Christian what the favorite passage of the Old Testament is. It's almost always Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. But even more complete agreement is discovered by the poll takers when asked what the favorite passage in the New Testament is. It's John 3.16. Well, we're familiar, of course, with that that passage, that text. Even see it written on boards, you know, held up in the stadia at some football and other games, other... um, But we often are not reminded that Jesus spoke those words of John 3.16 in a private conversation with a man named Nicodemus. So we have Nicodemus to thank for visiting Jesus at night and hearing the words from the lips of the Lord himself that God so loved the world that he sent his son to redeem it. With that of an uh, introduction, I'm going to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 3. It's familiar, but keep in your mind, this is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it it pleases, You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, 
But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, that I'm on my way to a preaching assignment up in Wisconsin. Uh, While I was at Trinity, I I had many of these opportunities uh, to go to the state of my birth. Following, of course, the uh, tollway until it meets 94 and crosses the border into Wisconsin, Then you head north on I-94. Well, about 10 miles north of the border, there's a notice of an exit. I think it's number 333. I'm not sure about that. But I know that it says Racine, Wisconsin. Well, that's the city of my birth. I spent the first 17 years in Racine, Wisconsin. And invariably, as I drive along, nor going north, I think I was on my way to Oostburg that, on that occasion, my mind drifts back to my childhood in Racine. Um, recollections are sweet, aren't they? And when you think back to your childhood, don't you usually think of the pleasant experiences? Well, that's my um, habit anyway. And the time of the year I liked best when I was a young boy was, of course, summer vacation. Oh, there's nothing wrong with going to school. I didn't mind school at all. But there was something about summer vacation that whenever I reflect on my childhood, my mind goes back to summer vacation. We lived in the north end of the city, and from our backyard for miles, it was open country or thick woods, and we loved to romp away in the, in the woods, climb trees and eat choke cherries and crab apples and, and plants that we knew uh, were harmless. I don't ever remember getting sick, but we used to know what to eat and what to, to avoid. Um, build hideouts, play cowboys and Indians, great memories. But there's something else I remember with great sweet recollection of my summer vacations in my childhood. And this may come as somewhat of a a surprise to you. Revival meeting, revival time. Now, I was born and raised in a traditional Christian Reformed church. The first seven years of my life, the services were conducted in Dutch. And I didn't understand any of it, except the, the word I waited patiently to hear, amen the end of the sermon. sermon. And uh, about the time I turned eight years old, as I recall, 
they started splitting one service in Dutch and one in English. And in a few years, it was all English. And my dad was a traditional elder, and he was uh, committed to the Reformed faith as he was all his life. But somehow, he wanted us to be exposed to other traditions as well. At least, he liked to take us to revival meetings. The itinerant evangelists would come from really distant places, and uh, they would clear out a vacant lot and set up a big tent and a sign in front indicating that there would be revival meetings from Monday through Friday and such and such a date. And there we were. My favorite evangelist was a man named Charles E. Tinley, Jr. He was a black evangelist from Philadelphia, and my, my how he could preach. He was a singer as well, and his, his wife used to play the piano while he sang, and he would lead us in, in vigorous singing, vigorous singing of the hymns. But among those hymns that we almost always sang, one was always included. And we're going to sing it as our closing song of the service to, uh, tonight. And that is about Nicodemus. And you knew I would get to that point, didn't you, huh? Yes, we sang about Nicodemus, a ruler who came to Jesus by night to ask him the way of salvation and light. I'm almost tempted to sing it, but I'll avoid that. Uh, the master made answer in words true and plain, you must be born again. How many of you remember that? Huh? Not very many of you. Well, we're going to have, have to sing it a bit. The chorus, of course, repeated, you must be born again, you must be born again, and so forth. So, well, we'll sing that a little bit. Born again. We don't use that terminology much anymore, do we? Huh? But it's good biblical terminology came from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. Some of you remember uh, President Carter, who, of course, uh, had a home church down there in Plains, Georgia, and uh, had a reputation for teaching Sunday school. I hear he's still teaching Sunday school. I think he's 91. That's older than I am. <laughs> a reporter once asked him if he was born again, if he considered himself born again. And to his credit, he said, yes, I'm a born-again believer. And reporters didn't seem to tire, sort of suspicious of anyone who would claim that the Spirit of the Lord would transform his heart so that a new birth experience would be, would be his. And I've always admired uh, President Carter because he, he was willing to stand up and be counted among those who are who, of those who are born again. Well, that comes right out of our scripture reading, doesn't it? In the encounter with Nicodemus, for the, the heart of the matter is when Jesus says, you must be born again. And then goes on in 3.16 to tell him that that is a real possibility. So that's our theme for tonight, encounter or Nicodemus's encounter with Jesus, and especially emphasizing that he called him to be born again. I want you to notice, first of all, that Nicodemus was a very intriguing person, very interesting personality. The Bible here says that he was a ruler of the Jewish council. 
He was a member of, of the Sanhedrin, which was something of a political office, something like a city councilman in the city of Chicago, uh, responsible for, uh, for overseeing the political life within uh, a certain region, within a certain territory. You see, the Romans were wise to recognize a certain level of local autonomy. They were, of course, the overlords. Their empire was supreme, and all the big decisions were left to the Roman authorities. But they allowed a certain level of local authority among uh, the populace itself over whom they were governing. And um, the Sanhedrin occupied that position. So he was a ruler. He had sort of a political office. He was highly regarded, highly respected in that office. I tried to think of a parallel today, and the closest I could come to was Governor Huckabee. Now, I know he's dropped out of the, out of the race for the nomination, but Governor Huckabee was not only governor of Arkansas, he was also an ordained Baptist pastor. So um, somewhat like Nicodemus, he had a political office, but he also had a religious p position. He's called a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest of the religious sect. There were four major ones, you know, during the time of Jesus. The Pharisees, which we have here, the Herodians, the Essenes. We don't hear much about, about those, do we? They were a, a monastic order, so they, Jesus never really encountered them. They were tucked away uh, in, in their monastery settings. And then the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were the most highly regarded of, those, of, of that religious order. So there he is, a man who enjoys both a level of political as well as religious prestige. And apparently he was attracted to Jesus. Well, there were a lot of people attracted to Jesus for a variety of reasons. Some of them were attracted to, do, to try to destroy him. But he apparently was probably already at this point a secret follower of the Lord. The Gospel of John gives us three glimpses into the character of this man, Nicodemus. And the first of them is right here in John chapter 3. Um, Apparently, he developed a certain interest in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he must have been a, a man of a curious disposition. And we have to give him credit. He's going to see for himself. He's not going to take somebody else's opinion. He's not going to listen to the other Pharisees and try to judge what they think and join the group. The group. But he's going to see for himself, also oh, under cover of darkness, perhaps a secret follower, he looks to have a conversation with Jesus. This is the first glimpse. Um, have you ever experienced real darkness? You know, we can't imagine. We have so much electricity. It's never really dark, is it? Uh, the street lights are on. Uh, the car lights pass us. Car lights pass us. The buildings are all lit. But if you're, you really experience a moonless night in a place where there's no electricity, I experienced that 
the last year of the Second World War when I was chucked off to the South Pacific. And in the jungle on a moonless night, it is black. And that's why Nicodemus was not discovered, his secret follower yet. It was really dark. And under cover of darkness, he goes to Jesus for a conversation. The second a glimpse or portrait of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is in chapter 7. It was during the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the three annual major feasts, feasts that lasted most of the week. The whole chapter, John chapter 7, uh, deals with the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles and various responses to Jesus during that feast. It begins with his own family. And Jesus' own brothers, you're told, challenged him to go to the feast and let himself really be known. And uh, the sad refrain uh, includes a statement that even his brothers didn't believe on him then yet. Fortunately, later they did. But Jesus finally, about midweek, went to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he was a center of great attention. People flocked around him. And uh, the Sanhedrin, of which Nicodemus was a member, remember, um, were incensed. They were the teachers. They were the authority. What's this man from Galilee doing among us here? And I think probably mostly out of jealousy, they wanted to have him arrested. So they sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus and bring him in, bring him in for questioning. Temple guards, they weren't really policemen. Uh, they were more like... Um, a private security detachment. And if you read that passage, I recommend it. It's, it's really fascinating. They went out to find Jesus, and they started listening into his teaching while the people gathered around. And the more they listened, the less they desired to arrest him. And they returned to the Sanhedrin and reported, well, sorry, we didn't arrest him. We didn't bring him in. And they were rather scolded for it. But their response was this. No man ever spoke like that man. So impressed were they that they wouldn't fulfill their obligation and fulfill the, the, the orders of the Sanhedrin. Well, they came back, of course, and made this report. And uh, then the Pharisees and the others sent him out again. But before they left, Nicodemus stood up and said, look, we don't arrest a person without due process. He made that next step to have at least some open defense of Jesus. So you see the progress in his association with Jesus. And then it ends in John chapter 19, verse 39 even as Lent ends up at the cross and Easter. So we read in John chapter 19, Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea went to the Roman authority, Pilate, and asked permission to bury Jesus' body, to remove it from the cross. And that he had to do openly. So now he is an open follower of the Lord Jesus. The progression, you see, first at night under cover of darkness, 
And then he defends Jesus in a rather tangential sort of way. And then he has open identity as a follower of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. That's the progress you see in the life of this man, Nicodemus, all beginning with a conversation in the middle of the night. We could go on just a bit and uh, talk to you about early church tradition, which doesn't have the authority and veracity of the Bible, of course, but according to early tradition, Nicodemus died a martyr's death and was buried in a common grave with Stephen, the first martyr. So much for an intriguing person. Let's turn to our second point tonight, an interesting prescription. Uh, as we read this passage, it quickly uh, suggests that Nicodemus was very impressed with Jesus. And he began his conversation with compliments. I was just reading the uh, theological journal this week and just happened to have a reference to this very passage. And I had my sermon ready already, so I could hardly uh, include some of those comments. But one thing that struck out was the author of, the, of this article said that Nicodemus began talking with G, to Jesus with flattery. Well, I think that's not quite fair. Flattery, you see, is, is excessive praise, usually motivated by some personal desire for a good response. Well, Nicodemus uh, compliments Jesus, and he does so, and it's not really flattery because it's true. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracles that you are doing if God were not with him. So he calls him a rabbi, a teacher, which was an honorable title. Very few of his fellow Pharisees would ever call him that and a teacher sent from God, a God-commissioned teacher. What a high compliment that Nicodemus gives to our Lord. Beyond that, he says, Jesus, you're a miracle worker. So there it is, a God-commissioned teacher and a God-prepared miracle worker. How do you respond to compliments? Jesus didn't respond the way Nicodemus probably expected him to. He probably expected Jesus to say, well, thank you, Nick. <laughs> yeah. You ever hear about my Sermon on the Mount? Wasn't that great? I had 5,000 people there. Uh, how about the miracle in Cana? I've got none of that, none of that. He simply almost changes the subject and gets to the heart of the issue. And that's in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't think it's possible for us to understand the shock that that response must have been for Nicodemus. Jesus is saying that participation in God's kingdom you see, God's kingdom is simply God's rule, God's sovereign authority over life. 
in order to recognize that God's kingdom is supreme and not the kingdom of darkness, requires a new birth. Only the reborn can recognize God's rule and acknowledge in their lives God as king. Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that the reason for his presence in the world, the reason for his teaching, the reasons for his miracles, is to prove that God's kingdom has triumphed over sin and evil and hatred and envy and disease, God's kingdom is overall. And the reborn live in the reality of God's overarching rule. Citizens of God's kingdom are born into it. Well, Nick's, Nicodemus's reaction is very incredulous. That's in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? The only birth Nicodemus seemed to know was a physical birth. And he says, it's impossible. Perhaps his mother wasn't even alive anymore. Impossible to re-enter the womb from which you were born. How is it possible to be a citizen of God's rule if that's a requirement? Which brings us to our final point tonight, the the divine possibility. It is possible to be born again. You see, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that two births are required. Um, A long time ago, uh, while we were singing a happy birthday song, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, uh, I made up a little song for my children, and later I taught it to some of the churches where, where I served and, and preached. Um, and it goes like this. Happy birthday to you. Only one will not do. With the gift of salvation, you then will have two. I'm tempted again to sing it for you, but I'm going to avoid that temptation. I'm going to fight it. You see, what Jesus is saying is that a physical birth must be followed by a spiritual birth sometime in life in order for us to be citizens of God's kingdom. And so he says in verse 5, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the spirit. Born of water, what does that mean? We make it more complicated than it is, I think. In Roman theology, they insist that born of water means baptism. And that's why... The Roman theology claims that no one can get to heaven unless he or she is baptized. And they even have a special place for babies who die before they are baptized. It's called limbum infantum, I I think, in Roman theology. I even um, knew a a Reformed uh, theologian who tried to make a case for that, anticipating the gospel later that said it, Believe and be baptized, you will be saved, and claim that what Jesus is talking here about here is baptism. Well, it's simpler than that. Water baptism simply means physical birth. The ancient world is not much different than our world. We speak, don't we, sometimes 
just before a baby is born. Her water broke, speaking of the mother, of course. Her water broke. Well, it's not really water. It's amniotic fluid. I had to look that one up. Uh, this is simply a simple reference to being born physically. Obviously, to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to be human. In order to be human, you have to have a physical birth. You have to be born of water. And then you must be born of the Spirit. It requires the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, that of which uh, Ephesians 2 so clearly speaks, that by grace we are saved through faith. See, born once in sin, reborn in righteousness as citizens of God's kingdom. So what you have here in this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus is simply different, do I dare say it, soteriologies. Uh, sorry, all that big word means is the doctrine of salvation or how to be saved. Nicodemus had an idea of how to be saved that contrasted with Jesus' teaching. For Nicodemus, you see, he thought that you had to be physically born, obviously, born of water, and then you had to obey 613 rabbinical rules. You see, they had cataloged the law of Moses into 613 rules and regulations, and when you've kept all of them, then you are part of God's kingdom. So Nicodemus's method of salvation was through human effort of self-improvement. And you see many examples of that among us today, especially on our television religious programming. Jesus had a different idea. Jesus tells us that only divine, complete transformation of the soul of man will cause one to seek and gain the heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven. We're reminded once more, my good friends, that all human effort ultimately fails, and the kingdom of darkness becomes supreme. And only God's grace and God's spirit can bring us into God's kingdom. So we rely completely on his mercy and grace. Nancy Reagan was put to rest this past week. And she is best known when her husband was president of the US for a crusade in which she said, just say no. That was her solution to the evil the kingdom of darkness called drug addiction. Just say no. Now, I'm sure Nancy meant very well. But Nancy, like Nicodemus, had to come to understand, and I hope she did, at least the paper said this week, that she had come to believe in an afterlife, and she didn't believe in an afterlife when she first met Ronnie. Nicodemus, and I hope Nancy Reagan, had to come to know that we can't just say no. That's the problem. In ourselves, we don't have the strength and power and even the will to say no to the kingdom of darkness, to say no to envy, 
and to greed and to selfishness and to hatred and lying and cheating and cursing. We need a new nature, and thank God we can receive it through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 